Hello, and welcome to the Sola Gratia Sermons Podcast. I'm so glad that you decided to drop in today. I pray that you enjoy this sermon and that God, through His Word, convicts you, encourages you, and edifies you. I also pray that this sermon increases your knowledge of God and grows your love for Him and His Scripture. God bless you and keep you. Soli Deo Gloria. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it, those of you here in person and those of you online. I know there's going to be several. Um, we, we love you all very much, and um, it's, a, it's a bittersweet thing to leave your church. Um, so this may or may not be in a bit of an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> so um, prepare yourself, and please do pray for me. Amen to that. If you'd open your Bibles with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is where we'll be. The way I'd like to kind of structure this tonight is, um, I mean, it's kind of a mini sermon, if you will, but um, I do want this to kind of feel like an informal Bible study of sorts. Um, You know, I'm open to uh, questions. If you have a quick question or something or just constructive Comment, please, constructive, would be nice. Um, <laughs> uh, don't, don't hesitate. Uh, feel free. Um, I, I'd like to, you know, help in any way I can. Um, but we'll be zooming in on this psalm here. I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, it's, it's 31 verses, so bear with me while I do that. But I just love getting the full context of a psalm and what's going on there. So if you found your place there... And then, if you would also, put a finger over in Matthew 27 as well. Um, keep a finger there, because we'll be flipping back and forth there, and you'll, you'll see why. That will become apparent pretty quickly. <clears throat> Psalm 22. I'm not one for long introductions or funny stories. No, I'm just kidding. Every once in a while, but we'll jump right into it. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried, and they were rescued. In you they trusted, and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, 
A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Those who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised the, or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him, shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. There's not quite much in the world that holds a candle to the mighty poetry of inspired scripture. Sometimes we just need to read. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your word. It is life to us. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word this evening, that you would speak to your people, that you would edify your sheep, the sheep for whom you died, God. I pray that you would empower me and embolden me, give me the words to say and overshadow me with your cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's a mighty psalm. Next week, you're going to hear from uh, Lucas Nettles. Uh, He and I collaborated a little bit, if you can believe that. Um, (laughs) He's going to be doing Psalm 23. Um, So we we wanted to kind of do a little bit of a mini-series for you. But Psalm 22 is most definitely, if if you were paying attention, what we would call a messianic psalm. Obvious um, references to Christ and his afflictions, his beatings, his crucifixion, and all of the above. Meaning, uh, of course, by by it being messianic, of course, we say that many things in the psalm directly apply to Christ, or it foreshadows events that are fulfilled by Christ. Right? We see that. So there are uh, 14 Messianic Psalms, uh, explicitly Messianic anyway. We could say, you know, well, all Psalms in one way or another point to Christ, right? Uh, All Scripture is inspired by God. Everything points to the finished work of Christ and God's plan and purposes of redemption all down through history. But explicitly Messianic Psalms, there are 14. I can give you a list if you like when we're done. I'm not going to name all of them. But as a general outline in this psalm, 
what we see is uh, kind of two halves. The first half is a great lament, right? He's lamenting and he's sorrowful and he's praying. But then the latter half is praise and worship for what God has accomplished. And a lot of the Psalms are structured that way. But the general outline is verses 1 through 10 show the, the psalmist's hopelessness, his hopelessness. And then verses 11 through 21 are the psalmist's prayer that he prays to Almighty God to come to his help. And then verses 22 through 31, we see the psalmist's praise and worship to God and thanking him for what he's done. So if you wanted to divide it into just two parts, you could say, number one, that afflictions abound, and number two, that praises resound. Yes, I intentionally tried to rhyme it. It took a while. <laughs> but afflictions abound and then praises resound. It's a, it's a common uh, um, structure that we see in the Psalms, and it's beautiful. Psalm 22 is one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament, actually. It's quoted to or alluded to at least 15 times um, throughout the New Testament, and actually leading some in the early church to refer to it as a fifth gospel, if you will, because it's so clear who the psalm is, is speaking of, right? But it's, it's interesting in viewing Psalm 22 and 23 in order, and I totally stole this from Lucas as we were discussing these psalms, so thank you, Lucas, but he knows. But in Psalm 22, we see that the shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, right? And then in Psalm 23, we see that the shepherd lives to care for his flock, right? He's the good shepherd. So the shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, and he lives to care for his sheep. So in the life of David, as both shepherd and king, there is much to say, obviously, in how he would be a type and shadow of Christ, right? We, you may hear that terminology. Uh, we refer to it as typology, those of us who are theology nerds. And all that means is that there's shadows. There are things that are pointing forward to Christ or represent Christ. So we see fulfillment in the greater David, who is Christ himself. So in Psalm 22, it's, it's no different. We see some great examples of typology in the sense that everything David is writing has direct or immediate application to himself, yes, and implications to himself, but also has application in the future to Christ himself, foreshadowing what is to come. This distant application for Christ, well, what, how do we see that in these first few verses? Well, Christ, of course, I'm sure you noticed, he directly quotes from verse 1 during the crucifixion, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then likewise, Christ was scorned, he was despised, he was mocked, he was spat on. The people who wagged their heads at him, you see that language, it's the exact same language that we see in Matthew 27. They made sarcastic remarks like in Matthew 27 verses 42 and 43, if you still have your finger there. It's a direct quotation. They said, he saved others. You hear just the sarcasm and the mocking in their voice. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let him come down from the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. 
you hear just the horrific mocking in Matthew 27. It's a direct quotation here in this psalm. Do you think they knew what they were quoting? <laughs> they had any idea that they're literally quoting what was in this Old Testament psalm nearly a thousand years before. Isn't that amazing? Christ had water and blood pour out of him. We see that in this Psalm 22 as well. His bones were bruised, although not broken. That was also a fulfillment of prophecy. Bruised. His, his heart was heavy. He felt abandonment. He felt the crushing wrath of God the Father. His clothing was taken. The people divided his clothing and they cast lots for his clothing. Again, direct quotations from this psalm. Isn't it amazing? But then on the other hand, we see that the Lord is not far off, right? That God has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from them, he says. He has heard when the afflicted cried out to him, verse 24. And so it was with Christ. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And we see also that those who seek the Lord, it says, will eat and they will be satisfied and they will live on forever in eternity in adoration and worship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. That's our blessed hope, is it not? And in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Firstly, as it applies to David, well, the entire first half of this psalm focuses on his pain and his anguish and his terror in the face of unanswered prayer, or so he thinks, his unanswered prayer, verses 1 through 21. He's lamenting, isn't he? And we've all felt like this. Have you ever felt like that? Of course you have. Where God seems distant, you're overwhelmed with grief and terror or worry or anguish, asking, where are you, God? Where are you? Have you ever done that? You can be honest. It's okay. We've all been there. We're human, sinful, and we're fickle. But although we may experience these times of despair and anguish and we feel that God is far from us, as Christians, we should always be reminded that God is not far from you. God has not changed. He is still there. He cares for his children. And we also remember that everything we are experiencing, everything you are experiencing serves a purpose. Absolutely everything. In the providence of God, even the bad stuff, it does. Where would you be without a sovereign God? Nothing is meaningless if God is sovereign. But now, as this applies to Christ, here's the good part, right? Matthew 27, verse 46. And about the ninth hour... Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in Mark chapter 15, it's rendered fully in Aramaic, saying, Eloi, Eloi, it's a very similar word. He's crying out, and this is, of course, just one of the many striking parallels we see in this psalm, right? That 
uh, are mentioned between Psalm 22 and the very specific events of the crucifixion. It's also very similar to Psalm 69, which is also very messianic and has specific applications to the suffering of Christ. I highly recommend you read Psalm 69 as well. But why did Christ say this, right? We have to ask the question. Well, firstly, of course, his cry was a fulfillment of this psalm. Psalm 22, verse 1. That part's quite simple. But then also, more deeply, Christ at this moment was experiencing the abandonment and the despair that resulted from the outpouring of the divine wrath of God the Father upon his body. That's why he said that. As the sin bearer for his people, bearing this awful weight of the wrath of God. Hebrews 5, 7, in describing Christ's high priestly role, it says, In the days of his flesh, him being Christ, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he, w- and he was heard because of his reverence. He was heard. But what, what was accomplished here? <laughs> we have to ask that question as well, right? Well, what was accomplished is that he became a curse. As scripture tells us, he became a curse and he laid down his life for his sheep. The perfect, eternal son of God, the one and only begotten, the monogenes theos, which means unique and one of a kind God. The eternal one, by very nature, God, the one through whom all things were created, Scripture says. The one who knew no sin became sin for you. Became sin for his people. Christ, God, the eternal Son, second person of the Trinity, in taking on flesh, did what no one could ever do in fulfilling the law perfectly, truly God and truly man, or sometimes we say fully God and fully man, right? Never sinning, and he fulfilled the required justice of God perfectly, which was due to his people. I deserve that justice. You deserve that justice. He's the one who had never sinned, the eternally pure and infinitely holy God. Many people will forget that sometimes, and they they think of, they they like to separate the deity from Christ, right? And we have to be very careful of that. Ty and I and Lucas and others have been discussing the, the doctrines of God and the deity of Christ, the hypostatic union and all these things, and it's an incredible thing. We have to be very careful to not separate these things and to piece out God as if he can be put out into pieces, right? He is the eternally pure and holy, infinite God, and he was taking on the sins of all his people, all his sheep, all of those who would ever be drawn and called to believe, and he became a curse for all of them, all of his sheep. The eternally and thrice holy God who has no sin in his nature, none, sent the Son in willing condescension. It wasn't as if he was forced to. 
willing condescension. God the Son who abhors sin. He abhors it. Psalm 5 tells us he hates sin and in his humanity took on that abhorrent sin upon his shoulders. (laughs) Taking the stain and the filth and death of sin upon himself. He provided the sacrifice. Perfect atonement. We'll talk about that in a moment too. Just as the ram was provided for Abraham, right? This is the sin debt that we could never pay. God demonstrated in his own love, grace, and mercy, holy justice, and wrath perfectly in that one cataclysmic event by taking it upon himself to pay the debt. Because you can't, and I can't. And Christ drank that cup of God's wrath dry, Scripture says. He drank it all, fully appeasing and propitiating the wrath that was due to me and you. That's verse one. (laughs) But why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? He says. So we, we need to clarify, do some technical diving here. We need to clarify what is and what is not happening here. So we talked about not piecing out God and separating the deity from Christ and all those things. We need to be careful with those things. We must understand that Christ quoting from this psalm does not mean that the Trinity, that the Godhead was somehow broken. Amen? Those communication lines were very much still open in Christ's deity. There are those that teach out there, yes, I promise you, they are out there, that teach that the deity from Christ can be separated somehow, that he emptied himself of all his deity, he was no longer divine, and things like that. It is heretical and dangerous teaching. He did not lose communication with God the Father somehow, although taking on the wrath in his humanity. John Gill, commenting on this passage, he's a wonderful um, Baptist Commentary, commentary, commenter. (laughs) He says, why hast thou forsaken me? Which is to be understood not as if the hypostatic or personal union of the divine and human natures were dissolved or that the one was somehow separated from the other. For the fullness of the Godhead still dwelt bodily in him, nor that he ceased to be the perfect object of the father's love. For he was in the midst of all his sufferings. Yea, his father loved him because he laid his life down for the sheep, nor that the principle of joy and comfort was lost in him, only the act and sense of it. He was now deprived of the gracious presence of God and the manifestations of his love to his human soul and had a sense of divine wrath, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, and was for a while destitute of help and comfort, all which were necessary in order to make satisfaction for sin. For as he had the sins of his people imputed to him, he must bear the whole punishment of them. It's incredible, isn't it? So we have to, we have to be careful with how we handle that, right? 
We have to remember, truly God, truly man. Yes, Christ in his humanity experienced and took on the full wrath of God for all the sins of his people. However, in his deity, those communication lines were very much still open. In his deity, he could not be separated from the Godhead, for that would mean that God had separated himself, had pieced him out or divided himself in some way. It would mean that Christ would cease to be God. And if he can cease to be God, then he was never God to begin with. And you now have a God who has just changed. Which scripture says is impossible. Amen. Getting a bit technical there, but I feel that's important to cover. Talk about. He says in verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In your anguish, in your trials, and in your fears, and in your sin, in your falling short, and in your afflictions, God is still on his throne. He's still ruling and reigning. We see a a, a glimmer of hope here, don't we? Even in his anguish, even in his lament. Yet you are holy. God's kingship exists and existed before any human throne ever existed. Amen? Amen. Do we believe that? Do we acknowledge that every day? Do we remember that every day? I would say no. We're imperfect and, and fickle, right? But we need to acknowledge that and remember it. No matter what is happening around us, Or what's happening to us personally, can we say with Job, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him? Do we say that? Do we acknowledge that? I think we would all do well to remember that more often. Yet you are wholly enthroned. Not only does he reign and rule and govern all things, but what is he enthroned upon? It says, the praises of Israel, of Israel. So again, we have direct application to David and then future application as well. This would have application both in David's time and speaking of ethnic Israel, that is those who were not actively practicing idolatry of some sort, right? But then it would also have application today in speaking of all God's people, amen? All God's true People, true Christian believers, both Jew and Gentile. Aren't you thankful that it does not matter what ethnicity you are, what country you come from, what your background is? People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he says, you are holy enthroned. Notice he does not say you are love. Although God is love, we acknowledge that. But he doesn't go to... God's love necessarily for comfort in this verse. He says, yet you are holy. You are enthroned above on the praises of Israel. See, many in the modern church only want to talk about the love of God, right? That God is love, 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 and only love. But that's not what the angels say as they encircle the throne of God. They say, holy, holy, holy. This is... 
where he draws his peace. God is holy, and all of his dealings with us are righteous, but we still sin in this wicked body. We're so far from perfection, amen, but one day we will be glorified, Scripture says. We will be made holy. We will see him as he truly is, and we will be like him. Isn't that amazing? We will see him as he truly is. So a quick shameless plug here, as long as we're talking about holiness. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend to you a, a book by R.C. Sproul. It's called uh, The Holiness of God, plain and simple. The whole book focuses on that. Verses 4 through 5, he says, he goes on and he says that our fathers trusted you. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. So David, he would be aware of the, the stories of the great fathers of the faith, wouldn't he? Of Abraham and others down through history of Noah. Abraham was delivered from the five kings in Genesis 18. And Joseph was delivered from the Egyptian prison in Genesis 41. David knows this. And most certainly Moses and Israel delivered from the land of Egypt in Exodus chapters 1 through 15. So those who trust in God, they may be afflicted for a time, right? We see that in the lives of all the fathers of the faith. Just as Stephen was stoned, he was afflicted for a while. But ultimately, those who trust in God, he says, you delivered them. Ultimately, those who trust in God, no matter what their affliction, they will be rescued from their sin. Amen. Rescued from death, and they will not be put to shame. It's a good reminder. Amen. And he goes on in verses 6 through 8, and David details the mocking, the ridicule, and the hatred of his enemies. Do you have people who hate you? Well, David had more, so, <laughs> so you can calm down a little bit. <laughs> he had a lot of people who hated him. Have you read the Old Testament? A lot. His enemies, uh, he had many enemies. He was, he was a man of war, wasn't he? He's well acquainted with battle, with enemies who want to shed his blood, Right? You scorned, he says, by mankind. I am despised. I am mocked. They make mouths at me, which is a, a fancy way of saying they sneer at me. Let God deliver him if he delights in him. David had many enemies. He was obsessively pursued by King Saul for a time. His Enemies ridiculed his trust in God. They hated God. Think of Goliath. That's the one we always go to, right? 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 43 through 44. The Philistine, that is Goliath, said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? You child. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods, his false gods, Dagon, so on and so forth. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. I can't do the voice perfectly, I'm sorry. 
David's priceless reply (laughs) in verse 46. The day, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and I will remove your head from you. (laughs) And I will give the dead bodies of your army, not just you, (laughs) the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth and all that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. (laughs) That should be in a movie somewhere if it's not already. David understood mocking and ridicule. In all, but in all of David's trials and all these things that happened to him, he never stopped trusting God. He lamented, yes, he was in anguish, yes, but he never stopped trusting God. He was always drawn back to repentance, always drawn back to praise, which is what God does for all of his children. Amen? Flip back to Matthew 27 in verses 40 through 44. We see the same language used of Christ. Or 39, I guess. And those who passed by, they derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from that cross So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders, they mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. No, you won't. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. You see the direct parallel to what David says about his enemies, or rather what his enemies say about him. John Gill again says, The Jews esteemed Christ as a worm, and they treated him as such. He was loathsome to them and hated by them. Everyone trampled upon him and trod him underfoot as men do worms. Such A phrase is used of Christ in Hebrews 10.29, which says, How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? How much worse of a punishment those who revile and mock Jesus was constantly mocked by the Pharisees, wasn't he? Not just the Pharisees, many other groups of Jews, and we see scribes and elders mentioned here. They called him a blasphemer, for he makes himself equal with God. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. They accused Jesus of having a demon a time or two and all sorts of other disdain and lies all the time. And these same Pharisees, priests, scribes, elders, and others among the horde of bloodthirsty Jews, they reviled and cursed and spit at him. 
Our Lord Jesus knew what it was <laughs> to be reviled and mocked and hated. And remember, he told his disciples, the world will hate you. Why? Because it hated me. So do not be surprised if that comes upon you. Are you prepared to be reviled? Are you prepared to be hated? That was one of the questions that Oshaleta asked me in my, in, during the Q&A session. Would you be prepared to go to jail for the gospel? We must be. We must be. Verses 9 through 11 of Psalm 22. Here we see some, some comfort again, right? For those who trust in God and so much more. He says, verse 9, you took me from the womb. You took me from the womb. <clears throat> this harkens to Psalm 139, if you're familiar with that. One of my favorite Psalms, verses 13 through 16. For you formed my inward parts. Everybody knows this Psalm, right? You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You hear just the praises overflowing from him. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. <clears throat> the sovereignty of God, once again. Verse 10, Psalm 22, David says, On you was I cast. On you, or, or this word means to be thrown upon, right? The same word is used to describe when Joseph was cast into the pit. He was thrown into the pit before he was sold into slavery. Or the command of Pharaoh to cast all of the newborn baby boys into the Nile. To throw them into the Nile. But David says, on you was I cast from my birth, from the womb, you have been my God. From the womb. Well, how, how can this be? <laughs> well, we have a sovereign God, as I said already. How can this be? You may not have known God when you were born, but God knew you. He named you, and he chose you for a purpose, knowing every sin you would ever commit. Do <laughs> you ever ponder that? This is the same language we see. We, we've been studying uh, Galatians in Sunday school. Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 15, but when he, Jesus, who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. He was pleased to do it. He called me. Did you call yourself? No, you did not. We have to understand the gravity of what's being said here, both in Galatians and in the psalm. This speaks of the foreknowledge of God, his intimate knowing, prognosko, that's one of my favorite Greek words, the foreknowledge of God, 
or for-choosing of God is how it can be understood. His intimate knowing and choosing of his people. Indeed, the sovereign electing purposes of God. As we see echoed in Romans 9, speaking of Jacob and Esau, right? Before you were ever born. Did you deserve that? I didn't. This speaks of the effectual call of God, doesn't it? Like Pastor James has covered over the last uh, couple weeks ago. He spoke on this a lot, detailed in 1 Corinthians. The call of God where he draws and he calls his sheep to himself. He called you for a purpose. Calling all of his sheep to himself, of which Jesus said he will not lose one. Isn't that a peaceful thing? John chapter 10. If you are a believer in Christ here today, you need to understand that what we see here in Psalm 22 verses 9 through 10 was not only true of David, but you also. You also. Romans 8, 28 through 30. Prime passage. We would all do well to memorize that. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are what? The called. According to his purposes, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. From the womb, you have been my God. Mm. Verses 14 through 18, I'm almost done. Once again, we see a, a direct and immediate application, right, to David and the trials that he faced. He had been in turmoil, right? He had been pursued and encircled, he says, by enemies under threats of death. Verse 14, he says, my bones, my heart. So we have, he's, we have the fact that he's outwardly attacked, his bones. This is from Matthew Henry's commentary. I loved it. He's outwardly attacked and inwardly afflicted, bones and heart. Outward injury accompanied by inward agony. Have you ever felt that? Of course you have. He says, poured out. Well, this word meaning to pour, guess what, is often used to speak of the pouring out of what? Blood. The pouring out of the blood. All throughout the Old Testament, you should have seen all the references that it pulled out. The pouring of the blood on what? The altar speaks of the sacrifices of those animals that are slain and their blood poured out on the altar by the Levitical priests. Right? And what might you think that foreshadows? Amen. We see how this directly parallels to Christ, of course, right? We see that his perfect and righteous and perfect blood was poured out on the ultimate 
altar. The ultimate altar making one and final perfect atonement for all of his people. Perfect atonement. We need to be very clear about that because there's a lot of other doctrines out there nowadays. They've been around for a while. This was not a temporary atonement. This was not an imperfect sacrifice to be repeated over and over again like you see in the mass of the Roman Catholic Church where he is literally killed over and over and over again. That's what the mass is. Did you know that? No. It was a once for all time, Hebrews says. Once for all time, perfect atonement, a pouring out of blood and water, we're told at the cross, a perfect atonement, and what took place was a great exchange, we call it. My sins imputed to him, and his righteousness imputed to me. I have no righteousness of my own. None. Verse 16 and 18. I mean, come on. (laughs) Did David know what he was saying? The incredible language here. For the dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Give me a break. (laughs) Did he know? It's as as if he knew, as if he had a mirror or a TV in front of him showing it. It's incredible. I mean, goodness gracious, the parallels are astounding. His garments were divided. They cast lots for him. You can't make this stuff up, people. It's incredible. If there is anything that authenticates and confirms the inspired and infallible nature of Scripture, this has got to be one of the most incredible examples. Written about a thousand years before the crucifixion. As the young kids say, hashtag mind blown. (laughs) It's incredible. Verse 22 through 31, and I'll end with this. I know we're getting close. The praise and worship that comes out of the previous lament is incredible. Isn't it? Do you praise God like this? Uh Uh-oh. In the midst of turmoil? Remember, there are people who will look at verse 1 and 2 and say, See, see, Jesus was separated from the Father. He ceased to be God for just a moment. Yes, I'm serious. There are people that teach that on Christian TV. No. <laughs> Remember, in his humanity, yes, Christ experienced the full wrath and weight and punishment for the sins of his people. But in his deity, he was never 
separated, lost, or divided from the Godhead. We praise him for that. So if you're going to apply those first few verses to Christ, then you must be consistent and also apply these later verses to Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? Verse 24. For he, God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. David's enemies despised him. Christ's enemies despised him. But God did not. Do you see? God the Father's face, it says, was not hidden from Christ. It says he heard his cry just as he heard David's cry and just as he hears your cry. Aren't you thankful for that? And what is, what's the outcome of all this? Hmm? What becomes of David's faith in God? What becomes of Christ's sacrifice? What becomes of the purposes of God? Who wins? It's obvious, isn't it? Verse 28. Kingship belongs to who? To the Lord. He rules over the nations. Posterity or future generations shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. God wins. And by happy consequence, we win. In every generation, this is what's being said here, in every generation, no matter the, the century, there, has, there always has and always will be a people of God. Do you see what he's saying there in those last couple of verses? There will always be a people of God, a peculiar people, Scripture says, a righteous people, and yes, many times an afflicted people. <coughs> whom he will never forsake. Never. Down through the ages, it says, God always has his people, his posterity, generation to generation, and those people will proclaim his gospel to the next generation and continue on and on and on until he comes. I'd like to end with a quote from Psalm 71, if you want to turn there. Just kind of helps sum everything up in a beautiful way. Psalm 71, verses 17 through 23. If you're there, say amen. amen. Psalm 71, 17 through 23. Oh God... From my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to what? 
another generation. Your power to all those to come, all those yet unborn. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. O oh my God, I will sing praises to you with the lyre. O oh Holy One of Israel, my lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed. Amen. You were known and loved from the womb for a purpose. He has not forgotten the affliction of the afflicted. You don't forget the grace of God and the mercy that's been shown to you. And let's proclaim that to future generations. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we are so thankful for your word, for the beauty of the, the poetry and the song and the, the prophecy and the praise that we see throughout the Psalms. God, I pray that we would take your Psalms seriously, that we would study them more deeply. So often it seems they might get neglected as just a, a simple devotional tool or something to encourage me for the day but let us take them more seriously than that lord let us see the beauty that is found there within and study them more deeply lord help us to understand your word lord help us to remember that no matter what the affliction no matter what our anguish you are enthroned above you are holy and you are still god and you still love us God, help us to be a people who worship you and serve you and proclaim you to the future generations. Please give us the strength and wisdom to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you all.